I would like to acknowledge the Darawal people, the Aboriginal people of Australia whose country I live and work on. I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and thank them for sharing their cultural knowledge and awareness with us. Trisha Carter, an organizational psychologist and explorer of cultural intelligence. I'm on a quest to discover what enables us to see things from different perspectives, especially different cultural perspectives, and why sometimes it's easier than others to experience those moments of awareness, the shifts in thinking. As those of you who've listened to some of the earlier episodes will be aware, cultural intelligence, the capability to be effective in situations of diversity, is made up of four areas. There's the motivational, the knowledge, the metacognitive, and the behavioral. As a neuroscientist, our guest today can bring the wisdom from his research into a number of these areas. Let me introduce Dr. Mark Williams. He's an internationally recognized professor of cognitive neuroscience with over 25 years experience conducting behavioral and brain imaging research focusing on our social skills. He has taught the fundamentals of neuroscience to a wide range of undergraduate and postgraduate students, as well as publishing more than 70 scientific articles. Mark has been awarded numerous high-profile fellowships and grants and worked both at MIT in the USA and at universities in Australia. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for having me along, Tricia. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this and what we're going to uncover. But I'm going to start with the questions that we always start with. So I'd love to know, Mark, what is a culture other than the culture you grew up in that you have learned to love and appreciate? Yeah, I, I have spent very a few uh, wakeless nights over that question. I've oh, travelled no. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I love so many different cultures. Um my my sister actually uh, married a Balinese man, um, and that was fascinating to actually spend time up uh, in his community. I, I did on several occasions. I spent quite a long period of time in his community uh, in Bali, and oh, wow. the, uh, absolutely amazing culture. And especially as as somebody, I do a lot of work with with teenage boys, especially um, mm -hmm. around consent and appropriate behaviour and actually um, building relationships and so on. And the the definition or, or their, their understanding of being masculine is very different to ours. And yeah. you know, men will walk around holding hands with each other, heterosexual men, not, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, they're happy to sit next to each other and cuddle each other and actually cry in front of each other. And it's it's such a beautiful culture from that point of view, from a, mm. from, from a man's point of view who's, who's aware of the issues that we have in Western society and, and in patriarchal societies. Um, I find that really fascinating. I also find there... Um, their belief in superstition are really fascinating because I've yeah. never, um, I, I've never been very superstitious myself, and I, I find that beautiful that they can really believe in um, things outside their control to explain things that go bad. 
uh, in their lives so that mm. they can move on. Because um, mm. I think we miss out on that sometimes in, in yeah more Western societies where we don't have some way of, of just letting go yeah, <laughs> of what actually yeah. happens to us, which is really beautiful as well. But, yeah, it's um, lovely. Yeah, yeah, but I have travelled a lot, so I, I, there's so many other ones I'd like to mention. Yeah, and I wondered if you're going to come and talk about the USA, where I know you lived for a while as well. Um, I'm. Do you know if there's any, you know, the sort of population data around, um, you know, obviously suicidal risk and things like that that might be less in the Balinese culture because of those, I guess, protective features around masculinity? Yes, there, there, there does seem to be much lower um, suicide rates in those cultures. It's really hard to know, though, because it's, it's seen as very taboo as well. Right. Um, suicide, yeah. whereas it's not as taboo here in, yeah. um, in Western society. So it's hard to know whether or not it's associated with that aspect to it. But then we also, of course, yeah, most Western societies, Christianity is the dominant religion, and, of course, it's taboo in Christianity as well, yeah. so it still happens here. Um, yeah. But it is hard to know, but it is much, much lower in those cultures. But And you've also got the family units, which are much greater. They have large mm-hmm. family units mm-hmm. and cross-generations and all those things, which is so, so important for us. Greater sense of belonging. Yeah. Greater sense of belonging. Long-term, they, they have compounds that they live in where all the family, yeah. all generations live in it, and they've lived in it for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and all of those things, of course, are going to really impact on mental mm. health. Mm. Um, and of course, they also. Um, I, I've been talking to, um, actually, writing a book with a good friend who's a psychologist, and we've been talking a lot about um, Western psychology versus other psychologies. He's he's worked all over the world, um, and that's really interesting as well. That you know we have things like ADHD and depression and anxiety um, because of the way our society's set up. And mm. A lot of other cultures don't have those disorders because they just don't exist because of the way their cultures are set up and so um i wonder and that's just something i wonder about whether or not the fact that we label these things means that they're more prevalent or that they've become yeah more stigmatized and people are being labeled constantly and therefore that's where they end up uh, which is sad yeah yeah and yeah then the whole question around the measurement increases and Yes, but that's another issue, and uh, we'll wait for your next book maybe before we discuss that one. Um, I reached out to Mark after reading his book, The Connected Species, which I heard about on the podcast of uh, some friends who are also psychologists who were talking about leadership, and Mark was a guest on their show, and he spoke about some of these aspects, and I thought, oh, I think some of these things relate to my concept of shift and and um, anyway, I'll put those details in the show notes for those of you who have become intrigued, just as I've said that. Um, but let's think about the shift. And and can you tell me about a time when you experienced a shift, Mark, when you suddenly became aware of a new perspective? Yes. Well, I think the, the big one was I actually hated school. I was a truant when I was at school for most of those years. And I was well, there was multiple things happening in my life. I came from a small country town. It was um, there was high unemployment. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of drugs in the town. And my mm-hmm. mother had a mental illness, um, so you know, family life wasn't great. Um, and I was actually told when I was sixteen that I, by my principal that I'd be dead or in prison by the time I was twenty five, and I should go and get <laughs> an apprenticeship at the local um, abattoir. Um, and I just uh, yeah, Goodness. basically lost it from then 
on until I was about 25. I traveled a lot and I spent a lot of time couch surfing. We used to call it couch surfing back then. They call it homelessness these days. But um, yeah, it used to be couch surfing, which was, mm. I think, a much nicer way of phrasing it. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, and I used to travel a lot through Asia and so on during those years. But when I was 25, um, two of my friends had um, drug overdoses. And so I decided I needed a shift. And because of that, I went back to school and got my HSC um, and then went to university. I had a physics teacher that convinced me that I should go to university. And arriving at university was a huge shift in mm-hmm. who I was because all of a sudden all of my past and all of the, the bad things I'd done were almost erased because no yeah. one knew who I was or where mm. I'd come from. Um, and I was had this whole new perspective. And also seeing people who... Were, were aspiring to be something greater. They, they mm-hmm. were there because they wanted to become a doctor or they wanted to become a lawyer or they wanted to become an engineer. Or, and this is something that they've been dro- striving for for a long time and yeah. there was nothing that was going to get in the way um, of actually doing that. And, and I'd never really seen that before um, because of the people I'm mixed with and because of my awareness of the world. Yeah, right. um, and so that really made a big shift in my my head and the way I saw the world and the way people saw me, mm. which, was, which was quite um, a big change, yeah. quite stunning change. Sounds a bit like multiple shifts in like the teacher who who told you you could go to university and probably mm. opened <laughs> up your mind to the possibility, which maybe hadn't been there before, I don't know, and then how the environment created a sense of a different you. I haven't really thought before about how space might help us to shift? Yes, space is extremely important. I mean, before, um, well, we'll still, we have a lot of trouble with rehabilitation, with drugs addicts and rehabilitation. Um, But prior to the Vietnam War, uh, the success rate was horrendous for people who were in rehab. And then Mm -hmm. uh, we had a big shift in our understanding of rehabilitation because during the Vietnam War, a lot of the... the, um, personnel over there actually got addicted to heroin and other drugs and and that was an awful situation and not something we wanted to repeat. But then when they came back to Australia, the vast majority of them were cured overnight um, because they shifted environments. There were those with PTSD who continued Mm -hmm. on, but it was a very small percentage compared to the percentage of people who can't or have trouble getting off drugs normally. And yeah. so you, you've mm. got you know, 98, 99% of the, to the people who came back from Vietnam who were addicted to drugs over there were offered basically overnight. And it made us realise that it is the situation that's actually causing it, and that's the cue that's actually mm. causing it. So in you know, most societies what we do is we send someone away um, or put them in rehab and we get them off the drug and then we send them back to wherever they came from and they're pretty much on the back on the drug within a couple of weeks yeah, right. because of the fact that they're back into the same situation they yes. were before. Um, and if you actually move them to somewhere else and take them out of that situation, then they're much more likely to not um, fall back into those those traps that they were in before. So yeah. the situation does make a huge difference. And and moving, because I know you talk a lot about moving, but moving gives you the opportunity to, to shift mm-hmm. those things, right, to actually change those yeah. those things, which is really cool. Yeah. It, it can be very negative too because, of course, you can shift in a, in a negative way rather than a positive way. But yes. it is a great opportunity. Yeah, I always say to people, this is your chance to create different habits, to create, you know, different um, different ways of being because you've you've changed everything. So, you know, if if you always wanted to do something different about about your life, maybe about your habits, especially, 
So yeah, it is it is a great opportunity. And I guess from that perspective, because we're immersing people into culture, then it makes it that much easier to to be able to be aware, apart from the fact the things that might stop us. And I guess that's where I want to jump into your research because you've done a great deal of research and teaching. Um, and, and you also speak to schools and organizations about this research. Um, and one of the core areas that you've looked at is faces and facial recognition and how that relates to what you describe in your book as our drive to create groups and automatically associate with them, which is our drive for connection. So I'd love to hear more about that. Um, so, yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so we have, I mean, we're an, an amazing species because we we connect within groups, but we also um, will will collaborate across groups, which is quite amazing. And we're the only species on the world that will actually collaborate across groups. So if you think about like honeybees, they have amazing hives and they all have their roles within the hive and they all support each other and all the rest of it. But one beehive would never talk to another beehive and say, we've got extra honey, do you want some? Wow. Um, and we'll switch it for something else. We're, we're the only species that does that, which is pretty amazing. Yes. Um, and so, which means that our ability to know who is in our group is really important for us, but also that to be flexible enough that we can actually expand it or decrease it is mm -hmm. also really important. So we can change and we can perceive, you know, larger groups or smaller groups. Um, but one of the ways that we actually do perceive and one of the original ways that are actually seems to be in all mammals is this face perception template. So even cows recognise each other via their faces, via this area called the fusiform face area, which is pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> and they recognise there are the, the people who care for them as well via their faces. And, and your dog does as well and your cat okay. and all those things, which is yeah. why we we love animals and they recognise us right yes. when we get home, um, which is really cute. Um, but that face template is amazing because it, it enables us to recognise thousands of people and across you know long periods of time you, you run into someone you haven't seen for 10 or 15 years mm -hmm. you know, and they've lost their hair and they've gone grey and they've got more wrinkles and they've put on weight or they've lost weight and all these things but we still recognise that person automatically because of this face template and and the way it does that is it's based on the ratio of of where the eyes and the nose and the mouth, all the different parts of the face are to each other. So there's this template which has the average of that and everything is compared to that and it's everything's a little bit bigger or a little bit smaller in all its ratios to that template that we have. And that template is the average of all the faces we've ever seen. So all the faces we see is, is based on that. Yeah, that average is based on all those those faces, which means that the faces we see a lot, which, of course, are normally our family mm -hmm. or people of our race are closer to that template than people are who are from other races. Now, if you think back in evolutionary history, we would have originally spent most of our time with our family. We would have mm. been really small groups and we would have been travelling around and we would have wanted to know who was in our family and therefore that, that template method works really well because what it does is it sets off your fight or flight response if you see a face which is greatly dissimilar to your template so mm. something that deviates a long way from it isn't somebody who's a member of your family and so therefore is somebody that might be potentially dangerous and it sets up your fight or flight response which gets your heart rate racing uh, it pumps blood to your muscles it makes your eyes um be uh, uh, widen and all those things yeah. associated with fight or flight response and it does it automatically and it does mm. it without us realizing it so the 
more narrow your template, that is, the more people you see who are of the one race, the, the more likely you are to have that response and the more stronger that response will be. And so they've shown that, say, people from really homogeneous countries such as Japan, where there is a lot more racism, which isn't talked about because there's not many other races there, so therefore they don't get... Um, it doesn't get noticed as much, but they have uh, their, their template is much more narrow, and they have a bigger response to other races. And of course, you know, Japanese people can tell the difference between Japanese and Chinese, which to us as as Westerners is a really difficult thing to do. Um, but because their template is so narrow, mm. they're able to do that, and they get those responses too. But us as you know, in the more heterogeneous societies, we have. Uh, a wider template, but of course not not hugely wide. Here in Australia, we hardly ever see um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and so therefore we still have this response to individuals who we don't see a lot, and we need to just widen that template. But the really cool thing is that you can widen that template by just seeing a lot of faces. Yeah. So if we actually were constantly seeing lots and lots of different faces, that would actually widen the template. But unfortunately, we're getting the opposite effect because all the social media programs, of course, run algorithms to make sure that we're seeing what we're used to and what we like. And so if you look at anyone's feed, it will usually be the same basis that they would like to see, mm. which, of course, ends up being the same race. And so Similar. therefore, we're actually making it more narrow rather than wider. Yeah. Um, but if that, these, yeah, hopefully... At some stage, governments will start legislating and we'll get rid of those algorithms and that won't happen anymore and hopefully we'll... Uh, get um, her head back in a, a good direction. Appreciate your optimism, yeah. <laughs> I can only hope. That's right. <laughs> I, and, and I guess um, really what you're talking about here is, um, and, and in your book you spoke about the brain's limited capacity to think, and because we can't sort of stop and think, we therefore lead to that automatic fight or flight, which which then I think is part of what sits behind what we talk about as unconscious bias. Would that be correct? Yeah, the beautiful summary. We 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 because the world's extremely complicated, it's a very complex world. And and we our perception of the world is based on um what we call our working memory. And and you can call it consciousness if you like, but it's 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 your working memory, and your working memory is really limited. It's li well, we originally talked about seven slots in your working memory, so you're only able to, which is why phone numbers used to be limited to six or seven numbers, mm -hmm. because that's all you could hold in your working memory while you dialed those numbers. So it's really, really limited. And there's lots of cool experiments that you can view online around this is um monkey business um where you know you you there's a bunch of basketballs all tossing basketball to each oh, other yes. and if you concentrate on the basketballs all you see is the basketballs but then if you actually are told there's actually a monkey walk, walks through the middle and there's lots of other examples of that but we don't see everything we only see what we're actually attending to because your attention is what determines what goes into your working memory and then your working memory is really limited so you can only have a certain amount of information in that working memory than what anyone does um, and so most of what we do is automatic. It's stuff mm. that is habitual or it's stuff that's already in our heads as this is the way the world is and this is the way I'm going to see it. And mm. so we, we walk around the world, world most of the time 
doing stuff which is habitual. So there's cues that then set off, trigger either a behaviour or a thought, and then we get rewarded for that and that gets reinforced and we keep doing whatever that happens to be. And it's amazing how much of what we do every day is is really, really just habitual. You probably know I keep drinking water because it's what I automatically do and I just notice it's three quarters gone already. Yes. Um <laughs> even though I hadn't realised I was drinking water. Yeah. Um, and we do a lot of those things every day, which is why it is so hard to shift in organisations. In organisations, they have they go through all these processes where they want to shift to a new culture or they want to shift to a new um, working environment or something within, within the organisation, um, but they don't change all the cues. Mm. And most of the cues are environmental cues. And so they say you've got to do all these things, but unless you actually change the cues that are actually causing the behaviors that are actually happening everyone will just go back to the way it was because mm. that's the way our brains actually work and what you've got to do is set up different cues or a different um way you know different environments so that people will shift their oh. behaviors to that yeah ways of doing things and sort of a side thought but because it's in my head and because i know um some of my listeners will be thinking it as well because um, over the years, I've worked with uh, a number of people who have grown up globally, um, often referred to as third culture kids. You've probably heard of them. Um, and people who are, you know, whose mums and dads may be from very different cultures, so cross-cultural kids. So the TCKs and the CCKs will be saying, well, I didn't grow up with a limited, um, you know, a limited palette. Um I grew up with uh, with an, a great exposure. And so if we could all help everybody to see more, we'd overcome that, which I guess is possibly part of those cues. But um, is there any research around that, you know, with looking at people who have grown up with different templates? Yeah, there, there is a bit. So there's been quite a bit of work done in the US because, you know, they have quite a multicultural society. And even in the US, most of the people there actually have quite a narrow template and they have a bias towards seeing white people as being the more positive and the mm. black people being the more negative because of the media, because now yeah. we spend a lot less time actually socialising with each other and a lot more time just watching media. And in the US, most of the media portrays white people as being the good ones, being the heroes, being the ones that actually uh, uh, um, uh, have the more leading roles in all of the shows and the look at friends and all those things, right? It's all white people. Um, yeah. And that the black individuals are usually um, the, the the ones that are in the more negative roles or in um, side roles or secondary roles. Um, and all the analysis shows that white people are on TV a bit more. And so even though you've got, you can even look at a, a black person will actually have often um, their template will be quite narrow and will be narrowed around the white face rather than the black mm. face, even mm. though their family are all African-American. Um, that's what they're seeing on TV and they will have those normal, you know, those biases, which is why even, you know, um, African-American police officers will often do things which are quite racist towards African-Americans within society um, because of those templates and because of those biases that mm. they, they're, they're growing up in that society so yes it can really help and it's it's good but it also depends on all these other levels right. in society that you've been constantly being bombarded reinforced yeah. yeah so is there a way to know when we are relying on bias you know is it always unconscious can we bring thinking to bear on our bias can we use our metacognition in that way 
Yeah, so I think I, what you need to realise is you are always relying on your long-term memory. You are always relying on these biases, these, these templates that we've got. And so we need to first acknowledge that and then just slow down. And so, you know, the reason we rely so much on the habits is because we're always so busy and we're always mm. try, try, trying to react to everything. So, you know, when you walk into a room, walk into the room and stop and breathe mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and look around and work out how you're feeling um, yeah. before you actually start interacting with people. Because if you just walk in in a bluster um, and it happens to be that there's everybody in there is from a different race, mm-hmm. you're going to have this physiological response. If you walk in slowly and realise that you're having this physiological response and breathe deeply, and as, as you would know, by breathing deeply, we slow down our heart rate and we slow yeah. down all those yeah, fight or flight response and so on. And so you've been aware of the fact that we all do have these biases. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's sad because... We we talk about it as racism, and as soon as you say we you know Australia's a good racist country, everyone jumps up and down, and it's a bluster and all the rest of it. Whereas I think if we just said, hang on, everyone is biased wherever you come from, mm-hmm. so therefore we all need to be more aware of it. I think that would be a nicer way to actually yes. tackle it, and everyone could then go, okay, we, we're all like this, so we all need to slow down, and we all need to be aware of. Um, of these issues but slowing down that's the real key thing and I think that's why it's becoming worse now because we've all got less time and we're also busy these days and we all feel as well we're not really we're actually less productive today if we slow down Mm -hmm. we'd actually get more done um, which would be actually much more beneficial for us all we'd all feel better um, and we'd all relate to each other better yes agreed So, Mark, you've looked at many brains, which, you know, is not something I say to people very often. Um, But what's actually going on in our brains when we are trying to think, you know, when we're trying to to stop stop the bias or something like that? And and does metacognition show up any differently in the brain from, you know, just just learning or, or thinking knowledge? Yeah, it's a great question. It's it- our metacognition, we believe, I mean, the metacognition is still debated. I, I was amazed. I was recently asked to do a debate um, at one of the universities and, and it was it was with, or it was against, I suppose you'd say against, we, we were discussing AI um, and I, I was talking about the fact that AI will never be able to do metacognition and that's really the big difference between AI and us as humans and what makes us intelligent and AI just a fake version of of us. Um, and he tried to argue <laughs> that we don't have metacognition, which, yeah, I don't think anybody in the audience bought it. Um, mm-hmm. But but it's interesting that yeah, some people still don't believe that, that we don't have metacognition. But it seems to be the frontal lobes that really enable us to do that. So we have a big frontal lobe, so mm-hmm. probably a bigger one than most. <laughs> um, but um, we have big frontal lobes. And that really is a thing that that um, makes us different to most other animals. And that seems to be where our ability to actually think about how we're thinking or think about what we're doing or think about all of these habits and so on is occurring in us. Um, there's been arguments that octopuses also have uh, metacognition, um, 
but what? they have a completely different brain than what we have. So they've evolved down a completely different trajectory to us. Um, yeah, because they're able to to um, solve really complex puzzles and complex tasks and so on. Okay. And to do that, you really need to be able to think about what you're thinking about and how you're doing it um, rather than just simply reacting to it. But, yeah, our brains, at least, it seems to be that it's a frontal lobes that's actually doing the metacognition, allowing us to think about what we're doing. And then a lot of the primitive stuff and the, the fusiform face area that I was just talking about and the amygdala, which is fight or flight response, yep. and your early perceptual areas and everything, they're more in the back of the brain and in the inside um, okay. the brain. And so that's where that bit dissociation between the two seems to happen. Mm. So, I mean, have you ever looked, and I know that you, you know, as part of research, um, you give people tasks and you're looking at a functional MRI. So you're looking at areas of the brain operating um, in action. That's probably a better word, isn't it? I don't know what word you'd use, but yeah, I know that they don't really light up. I know that much. Um, but yeah, so do you ever look and think, oh, this person is a real thinker or or is it not ever apparent from that perspective? It's really hard to tell because when we're doing, because your brain, all of your brain's active all the time. It's one of those, you know, this whole, we only use 10% of our brain's complete nonsense, right? Yeah, yeah. We're using all of our brain all the time. And if we didn't, if we weren't, if if it wasn't active all the time, then it'd die off. So mm. luckily we're using the whole brain at the same time. And when we're doing any of those neuroimaging studies, we're really just looking at the difference between one state and another state and how big a difference that is. So if if somebody's, uh, say when you go into um, a meditative state um, or a really relaxed state, then you get into this what we call default network, which is basically the areas that are usually when you're doing metacognition and stuff, your frontal lobes and stuff, which are normally really active, they become deactive. So they become really low in activation and other areas become higher in activation. And then when you start actually thinking, those areas become higher and the other ones mm -hmm. become lower. And that's how we see these reds and blues and yellows and everything that we make up on the, on the pictures. Right. But so we can only see the difference between one state and another. And so it's it's hard to know whether or not it's because the person's really smart that you're seeing a big difference or because they can really relax themselves really well mm. in the other state. And so you get a bigger difference between the two. Mm. Um, but there doesn't seem to be any relationship between how much of a difference between two states and how intelligent someone actually is. Okay. If that makes any sense. Um, and, and if you think about it, a lot of people who are extremely intelligent are on all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so therefore you're not going to see big differences. No, in that's them, right. Whereas other people who can really relax. But then there are people who are extremely intelligent, who, you know, Buddhists. I, I have a colleague who studied Buddhists for a long time. Um, and they can, of course, go into those states mm -hmm. and all of a sudden very aware and, and so on. So they have big differences, big fluctuations in those areas. Yeah. And I was um, um we were mentioning before we began recording this that um, some of the research into cultural intelligence and looking at um, metacognitive awareness uh, has looked at mindfulness and the impact of how that does help people become more culturally aware. And so it might be that, uh, could I mean, I have often put it down to that ability to do what you said before, walk into a room, breathe, slow yourself down, take notice. Yeah, and I think people need to appreciate that what we need to do is 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 slow down, and different people do that in different ways. I'm a surfer, and 
you know, my wife will say when I'm starting to get too stressed on a thing, go for a surf. Get out of here. Yeah, and go for a surf. And that's my happy place. And that yes. really does bring me down. Whereas if you said to me, go and sit in a chair and meditate, um, it, it'd drive me nuts. And mm. and there's now actually a lot of research because there's been a lot of push to actually push um meditation practices into schools into um and there's now a lot of research showing that accent can be really detrimental for both teenagers and for kids if they can't do it well and so for some kids it works well but for some kids they'll get into their own heads and they'll start you know ruminating about things that um, yeah yeah, or bad for them or all these sorts of things so meditation is very good for some people Mm -hmm. (laughs) but not for everybody other people it's going for a run other people it's you know whatever it happens to be um you've got to find your thing that helps you relax and helps you get into that meditative state. Um, and that's really important. You know, I, I also, I get into flow when I'm writing and I love getting into that state when I'm writing, but my teenage daughter is an amazing artist and she does it through art and painting and things. And, you know, she can spend eight, nine hours just sitting there and all of a sudden she, yeah, you're like, you've got to stop and go to bed. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but that's her thing. And, yeah. and I think that's what we've got to, we've got to appreciate that there is no, one thing for everybody you know some people mm. like ice bars and other people don't like some people like saunas some people you know it's it's whatever works for you rather than this idea that there's, there's this one thing that we can hand to yes. everybody and it'll work for everybody yes i have a friend who's a wild swimmer in scotland which at this time oh. of the year involves breaking the ice before going for a swim so you know i'm oh. sure that that helps her 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 brain function well um, yes. <laughs> I, I, yeah, that that finding what works for you is is really really interesting, and I guess it's part of the sort of the uniqueness of everybody's brain. Maybe to if we're wanting to create the conditions that will help us to shift, we we almost need to know ourselves to be able to to do that. Yeah, and that's why metacognition is so important and why that slowing down is so important, giving yourself time to actually think about these things. We've also got to realise that a lot of our thinking actually happens when we're asleep. So we go through several stages of sleep, and one of those is actually running through scenarios of what happened during the Mm day um, to come up with better ways of doing things and everything, which is extremely important for teenagers. If anyone out there's got a teenager, you've got to get them to be sleeping nine hours a night um, because they learn how to actually empathise and how to relate to other people and how to mm. control their emotions and everything while they're actually sleeping. So it's, But it's important for all of us mm. to be doing that, and, and that actually teaches us a lot also. But being aware of you know how we're feeling when we wake up um, and how that may have been because of things that happened at night or things that happened the day before yeah. um, is really important as well. But it's a really, you know, you need to be reflective. Um, and the beautiful thing about us humans is that we do have these big frontal lobes that allow us to do that and yes. to reflect on our own thinking. So we need to slow down and actually start doing that. Otherwise, we're no better than a lizard, right? We're just uh, responding our, to the environment. Yeah, right. Our problem a little bit is, um, so I'm often doing corporate training uh, and, you know, in that, that the the ultimate intention is to create environments where people can shift. And yet we don't really have the ability to allow people to apply their unique preferred state. Uh, And also people are coming to corporate training now with, you know, brains that have shorter attention spans and are probably looking for, you know, the, the catchy, the excitement, the shift in 
light and color that they're seeing on social media. So um, often in training, I try and create connections between people and help them to share ideas. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, you know, as we try and think about the brain and we think about society and, as you said before, social media and all of the things that we're living with and working with, there are some challenges there. Mm, absolutely. And, I mean, Google does it really well because Google sets up its offices where it has lots of different areas for doing different things and for people to actually go to and has these quiet pods where you're not allowed to take any devices and everyone just relaxes and, and then it has areas where you can have devices and and then it has meeting rooms where people can get together and collaborate with each other and it has boards everywhere. And, like, that, they do it really well because they realise that, yeah, people... They want diverse people. They want multicultural environment because they know that people become more collaborative and more um, innovative when there's you know, multicultural um, groups together and they're very good at forming teams and then breaking the teams up and reshuffling them so yes. they keep people actually thinking. And so there's all these things that we've got to think about when we're actually thinking about people because our brains are, are constantly changing. And so your brain today is going to be different to the way it was yesterday and then it will be different again tomorrow because it's plastic because it's mm -hmm. changing based on what you're doing and what you're not doing so we need to realize that if if we're in a particular job for a long period of time it will become habitual and so therefore everything will get embedded into our brains and we'll be using all those cues and then if you want that person to then change Yes. It's going to be extremely difficult unless you take them out of that environment, put them into another team or put them in another location or put them, yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be really, really hardwired in their brain what they're supposed to be doing, What, which is why you find these people who have been in the job for 25 years and someone comes along and goes, there's an easier way to do that. And they're like, nah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. Not, I'm not going there. But, yeah. but we need to realise, yeah, that our brains are constantly rewiring themselves to make it easier and more efficient for us to do what we're doing at the moment which is why it's so beneficial to do lots of different things because then you're you exercising all of your brain it's all changing all the time and so it's much better for your brain to be doing that than to be doing the same thing all the time because it just becomes hardwired and becomes really automatic and becomes yeah something that you just regimented over and, and you can't change after mm. a while or yeah i find it much more difficult you can change but you find it more difficult yeah, yeah. The work, the work is is much tougher. Yeah, I think I think this is um, incredibly optimistic, and and that's what I felt about your your book. You you wrote about um, how the evolution of the human brain can save the world is the subtitle of the book, which which is titled "The Connected Species." Um, and so you describe a lot of the problems uh, that we've been discussing here, but but your tone is positive, and your tone is to encourage people to reach towards connection. Um, and and that we're not stuck in who we are today, that we can be different tomorrow. And I think that's um, that holding that, you know, that that thought is a, is a very positive one and, and can help shape us towards uh, working better and being better. Yeah, and I think we need to realise that the society that we've created, we've created this society and the environment that we have at the moment, we've created this environment of all that we've allowed it to happen. And so we can change it. Mm. Um, if we want to, and, and I think that's what we need to realise. I talked about patriarchy before, and I think we can, yes, yes, we're a patriarchal society here in Australia at the moment, but we can change that if we want to as mm -hmm. a group, right? This is, is this not, it's not a natural 
thing. Patriarchy is not natural at all, in actual fact. Um, and so we can change that if we want. In neoliberalism, we can change that. You know, if we decide that the, the way you know <laughs> workers are being treated at the moment isn't right, if we want to start you know paying our nurses and paying our teachers and everyone more so that they're respected more and start respecting them more, we can do that if we want to because it's our society. Um, we just have to have the, the gumption to actually go, hang on, this isn't working for everyone, so let's mm. do something different. We have a small number of really, really powerful multinational tech companies mm -hmm. that are doing some pretty horrendous things. But, I mean, I just noticed that the um, the US Senate has just uh, subpoenaed all of the CEOs of all the big tech companies. Um, and so there's going to be a huge court case over the next couple of months uh, looking at their... The, um, lack of support and and lack of um control over over the children you know the way children are, are targeted on social media right. um, so that's great right so yeah, they're yeah. becoming aware and they're gonna hopefully <laughs> do yeah. something about it and that could result in a jail term for these CEOs. so mm. um yeah I, I think we just need to realize that it's, it's our society that we've created and we can create a different society if we want to um, mm. we just have to be strong enough to do it Fantastic. Well, I want to close off with a quote from your book. It's actually right at the end of the book, and it's just uh, really encouraging. So, and finally, there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world. If we all loved a little harder, cared a little more, hugged a little stronger, and opened our circles a little wider, fewer people would feel lonely and depressed. Our brains would be awash with happy neurotransmitters, and we would all feel as we fundamentally are, part of the connected species. Thank you so much, Mark, for sharing with us today. I'll put links to your website, to your LinkedIn profile, and to your book in the show notes so that people can learn more about what you're doing. I think it's really important and it's been helpful for us here as we think about how to help people shift as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Trisha. It's been great talking to you. Thank you.